Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, February 13th by our lead pastor, Rod Heppel. Today is the 12th message in our series entitled, Acts, You Will Be My Witnesses. For more information about our church, check out sardisfellowship.com. Well, I hope that for those of you who took on the challenge of reading the entire New Testament by Easter Sunday, that you're keeping up with your readings. I know it's a bit of a challenge, and if you've gone behind, just get right back into it. Maybe take an extra hour on a Saturday morning and read through and get back up to uh, the schedule. I also want to say it's great to hear from some of you who are doing this that you're doing it also with one of your kids. I've heard from two parents with teenagers, and you're doing it together, and I think that's awesome. Next Sunday, Pastor Dave Lee, our Pastor Emeritus, will be with us and bringing the message to us from Acts chapter 13, so be sure to be here next Sunday. And of course... I am so happy to be a grandpa, and I know you saw the picture already of our son John and Larissa and their little boy, Oliver Duke Heppel, and it's just a really exciting time in our lives, and thank you to many of you who reached out to us this week and and congratulated us. So we're back into our sermon series in Acts, the second half of Acts that we're going to look at, and we've been looking at the fact that the title is To the Ends of the Earth. Uh, We looked at the first 11 chapters on the disciples being the witnesses of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, which carries on, but the emphasis is on this to the ends of the earth. And I was trying to encourage us to be a little more bold in our faith, to take a few more steps to being witnesses, because that mandate is still for us today as well. Just over a week ago, my dad was selling a wood stove on Facebook Marketplace or something like that. And so the guy uh, was going to come on the Saturday, and ahead of time, my dad starts praying for him. And he's asking God, if you give me an opportunity, Lord, I would, I would love to share Christ with this man who's coming. The guy came, and while they were talking about the stove, and they did the deal, and everything like that, my dad says to him, do you ever think about spiritual things? Without any hesitation, the guy said, yes, I do, all the time. And, and that led into more questions that he had about faith, because he grew up in a home with parents who were atheists. And he had lots of questions that he'd never really been able to ask or explore. And so my dad brought him back to the house and gave him a new study Bible and they were talking about what it meant to trust in Christ. And my dad has this diagram where it lays out kind of who God is, who we are, what salvation is all about, why Jesus Christ came to earth. And then at the end of it, if a person's followed through that and read all the scriptures, um, he asked him a question, would you be ready to pray to receive Christ into your own life? Something along that line. And the man said yes with tears kind of starting to well up in the corners of his eyes. And so he prayed that prayer to receive Christ. And this last week, my dad called him to follow up just to see how he's doing. And he's already told his wife, he's so excited about his faith, he's reading his new Bible, and he's starting to go to a church in Abbotsford. And so, you know, that's the mandate that is still ours today. That's what it means to go and make disciples of all nations. And, you know, in there comes that promise that the Holy Spirit is with us to the very end of the age. And that's why this mandate is still for us today. So, we're back into Acts chapter 12. If you remember, we were there last week. And Luke has chosen to tell two stories in Acts 12. Um, He's making a point by telling these two stories, which seems to be this, that even though there's human resistance to the gospel, God can overpower that. God is unstoppable. And his plans trump human intentions. And so last week we saw that King Herod, Agrippa I, the grandson of King Herod the Great, he had imprisoned Peter with the intention to bring him out after the Passover for what was called a public hearing, or otherwise known as an execution, because he had already killed the other apostle James, the brother of John, and it seems like he was likely going to do the same to Peter. 
But God had other plans. God wrecked Herod's little party, right? And he answered the earnest yet faithless prayers of those believers by miraculously releasing Peter from Herod's clutches and from everything that those Jewish people were hoping would happen to Peter. So following that story, Herod goes from Jerusalem over to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea where there's a city called Caesarea that was built in honor of Caesar, which was his governing palace. And uh, again, we're going to see another illustration of God's word continuing to overpower the human resistance to it, that God's word continues to go out and spread to all nations to the ends of the earth. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 12, verse 20, where our story starts today. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to spread and flourish. Wow, that's an interesting story, isn't it? So let's take a look at this. We don't really know the nature of the quarrel that was happening between, um, between King Herod and Tyre and Sidon. But it's not uncommon that trade battles were always happening on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in these port cities. What's interesting to note here is the extent of the power that this King Herod had. I mean, his power was already uh, large in the territory that he reigned in Judea because it was the same amount of territory as his grandfather, King Herod the Great, had to reign. But we see his influence even going to these other nations. You know, it kind of reminds me of the Ford family. Do you remember the story at all about Henry... Uh, Henry Ford, who kind of started the Ford Motor Company back in the early 1900s, and then little is known really about his son, Edsel. But quite a bit is known about his grandson, who was known as Henry Ford II, or Hank the Deuce. Uh, he was also a very uh, big wig, a mover and shaker in the auto industry in the 60s and 70s, much like his grandfather had been. And so we kind of see this here that King Herod Agrippa is wielding the same kind of power that his grandfather had. And these nations are now coming to him to say, okay, 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 we want to keep peace with you. You have something we need and all that. And I, I think that this is all part of it going to Herod's head and his pride issue that we see here in this passage. Uh, they get to Herod, by the way, through a personal assistant named Blastus, which we don't know much about him, but they used him in order to bring about this audience with Herod. I'm sure the name Blastus is making a comeback in the baby name book, but uh, for me, I'm personally happy that our kids named their son Oliver and not Blastus. Now Herod seems to have a swelled head about this, and there's this appointed time that he delivers this speech, and the people are pleased by it. Now, this speech event, which results in the death of Herod, is also recorded for us by Josephus, the first century Roman Jewish historian. And uh, I want to read for you his account of the death of Agrippa I. It says, Josephus puts it like this, on the second day of the spectacles, which were the games, clad in a garment woven completely of silver, so that its texture was indeed wondrous, he entered the theater at daybreak. 
There the silver, illumined by the touch of the first rays of the sun, was wondrously radiant. Straightway his flatterers raised their voices from various directions, though hardly for his good, addressing him as a god. The king did not rebuke them, nor did he reject their flattery as impious. But shortly thereafter, he looked up and saw an owl perched on a rope over his head, at once recognizing this as a harbinger of woes, just as it had once been of good tidings. He felt a stab of pain in his heart. That's how Josephus records this event that Luke has recorded for us as well. Herod's sin happened in his heart. It's a bit of a play on words there because literally, yes, but also figuratively. It was pride, right? It's something that, that was going on inside of his own mind and heart. It wasn't something he did and it wasn't something he said. It was something that he failed to do and it was something that he failed to say. He accepted their flattery and did not give praise to God. Now, this kind of pride is the same kind of pride that Satan himself had when he set himself up against God. Uh, we see a little picture of that in Isaiah 14, 13, where it says, um, You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. So there's, there's this kind of mentality within Herod to receive what is really only to be given to God. And that's what Satan himself did. In fact, the first commandment, in Exodus 21 to 3, it says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And in essence, what it's saying is, nor should you assume that which should only be given to the one and only true and living God, which is the sin of Herod. In Luke's account, it says it like this. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. God didn't strike down the people for shouting out these compliments. He struck down Herod for accepting them. That, that momentary thought amidst the shouts and praises that Herod had reveled in, that momentary thought and not immediately giving glory to God is what caused his death. My friend Bob Dobson had a phrase that he would often say. He would say, don't touch the glory. And uh, he would often actually use it in prayer. He'd be praying, God, you know, to move amongst us, to do something great, or, or whatever the prayer request was, which was audacious to ask. And then he would often say, and when you do it, we won't touch the glory. And, and I think that he knew that the glory belonged to God, not to us. But he also knew the temptation, that somehow just maybe we would want to make ourselves sound good, take some credit, and he didn't want to ever do that. And I, I often thought that maybe Bob had in the back of his mind this story about King Herod who did not immediately give God the praise. Don't touch the glory. The angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms. And we wonder, well, what, what exactly was that? What did that look like? One commentator has written about it like this. He says, Luke's reference to worms suggests an infection by intestinal round worms. Sorry, folks, this is a little bit gross. Round worms which grow as long as 10 to 16 inches and feed on the nutrient fluids in the intestines. This guy had a problem. Bunches of round worms can obstruct the intestines, causing severe pain, copious vomiting of worms, and death. Lovely. Well, whatever the physical details are, both Luke and Josephus record for us that it was the lack of humility of Herod before God that brought upon him the judgment of God. 
What I want to do here is contrast Herod's response to praise from people and that of the apostles. So let's look at three passages where we see that people tried to give praise to the apostles and they were very quick in their heart to give praise to God. The first one is Acts 3. We looked at this story back in the fall. Peter and John, they're going up to the temple to pray. And upon arriving to that place of worship and prayer, they see a man who's begging out front. He can't walk. And, uh, and he's asking for money. And you know the story. This is the passage, famous kind of saying where uh, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have you, I give in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the man's healed. So on the heels of that, uh, while the man was held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our power or our godliness, we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. That's who's done this. It's in the name of Jesus that this man has been healed. And therefore, the praise goes to him. So Peter's pretty quick to shift the attention from himself and the apostles to God. Not so with Herod. In Acts chapter 10, we see another story about Peter. Uh, this time, he's been called to the house of a centurion named Cornelius. Uh, Cornelius has had a vision about Peter bringing this message. Peter has had a vision about taking this message to Cornelius. And so he goes to Cornelius' house. And uh, this is how it happens. The following day, he, Peter, arrived in Caesarea. Just happens to be the same city where our other story of Herod took place in. He arrives in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. You know, it wasn't hard for Peter to be able to say this just like without any hesitation. He knew his sin so well. He knew his shortcomings so well. There's no way that he would ever entertain an ounce of reverence towards him, not for a moment. Get up. I'm just like you. I am nothing special. There is nothing special to see here, folks. You can all go home. The final example that I want to share with you is that of Paul and Barnabas. When they were on their missionary journeys, going out into uh, what was called Asia Minor, but today modern-day Turkey into these various cities. And in Acts 14, it's recorded for us about this city in Lystra, where they were. Um, in Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and they rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God 
who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Can you not just see the frustration in Paul and Barnabas here? The irony of the fact that here they are trying to bring these people away from worshiping idols and other gods and to know the true and living God. That's their intention. And they do this miracle, which should which should help the people connect the dot to the true and living God. But what do they do? Now they, they come and they start to worship Paul and Barnabas. They must have just felt like absolute failures. This, this witnessing trip is a disaster. Um, we're trying to turn their hearts from idolatry to worshiping God, and now they're worshiping us. It is interesting to see the contrast between Herod and between these apostles. There was no lack of clarity in the apostles' minds or heart about who God was and who, were, who they were as servants of the Lord. So the issue that we're looking at here is simply pride. Pride. And I think that to some degree we all struggle with it, and so I want us to spend a few moments and talk about it. I know that pride is one of those things that on some level is common to all of us. For some, it's a bigger problem than others. But I think, commonly speaking, it's a challenge to being human. We might not ever assume for ourselves the kind of glory that we see some of these people in these stories doing. That might not be our situation because it, it kind of seems obvious. But is it possible that we think too much of ourselves? Pride is insidious. It's sneaky and deceitful. And it can be operating in the background of our thoughts and our actions and we don't even really realize it. Pride is one of those things that somehow we can easily spot in others and often miss seeing in ourselves. And the Bible speaks to this problem a lot. And there are numerous stories in the Bible that illustrate when a person has pride, how it draws them away from God and leads to folly and destruction. Now, you've probably heard the saying that pride goes before the fall. And that actually comes from Proverbs 16, 18, more than one place in Proverbs, uh, it says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And I think that King Herod is an example of that. What comes to your mind when you hear this phrase, pride goes before the fall? Um, have you seen that happen? Here's a few examples that I think of. I think of the Titanic. And when it struck that iceberg, a man by the name of Bruce Ismay, who was the chairman of the ocean liner, said, but she can't sink, to which the architect, of the Titanic, whose name was Thomas Andrews, said, I assure you, sir, she can sink, and she will sink. She's made of iron. And of course, the Titanic did sink. Um, another example I think of is uh, during Expo 67, which I wasn't alive for. Um, although I am a grandpa, so not quite, though. 1967, the Montreal Canadiens were heavily favored to win the Stanley Cup. And Expo was taking place in Montreal. And so the Quebec Pavilion thought it would be fantastic to set up a display case for the Stanley Cup that would eventually be won by the Montreal Canadiens. It won two years in a row. This will be the third. We'll have it ready to go. The problem was the Toronto Maple Leafs. The Maple Leafs actually won the Cup in 1967. Just a little side note, that was the last time they won the Cup. And uh, so the Ontario Pavilion uh, got to set up a display place for the Stanley Cup. So there's a bit of irony in this story too. 
Um, Montreal went on to win in 68 and 69. So out of a five-year period, they won four times. And the only year they didn't win was the year that they were so confident and so proud that they built this case in the Quebec Pavilion. 1967, they did not win. So that's a good example of pride before the fall. Here are a few more Bible verses that speak to pride, just to put some context to it and understand what the Bible has to say about pride. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. So contrasting pride and wisdom. James 4, 6, and 10. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. That actually comes out of Proverbs as well. And humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now that's really an interesting thought. And Philippians 2 is all about uh, pride. The most amazing example of humility is Christ. And so Philippians 2 is speaking about humility that combats pride. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. And Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Pride is a real issue for all of us. It's listed in the uh, seven deadly sins list, which isn't found in the Bible, but each of these are found in the Bible. It's not listed in one section, the seven deadly sins. Uh, Pride is often considered to be the sin that all the other sins on the list rise out of. So envy and gluttony and lust and anger and greed and sloth, which is laziness. Uh, Pride, this is one definition, is excessive belief in one's own abilities. So it lacks this sober judgment. It's excessive in its understanding of yourself. Pride interferes with the individual's recognition of the grace of God. Okay, so it, again, kind of supplants God and puts us in that driver's seat. Meg Bosher describes pride like this, and I liked it. I think it really helps us identify how it works in our lives. Pride is a high or inordinate opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, or superiority, whether as cherished in the mind or as displayed in conduct whether craving compliments, fearing our own image, or entertaining an overly critical view of ourselves, pride can be both glaringly obvious and deceptively sneaky. (laughs) I love that definition or that description. Pride. Okay, so that's the negative side of pride. I think we're probably familiar with that and can identify with it to some degree. But we often sometimes use pride in a good way, right? In a way that might even be healthy. Uh, We say things like, you must take pride in your work, or you must be proud of your work, or to a child, I'm so proud of you, usually acknowledging some kind of an achievement or an accomplishment or uh, character quality uh, that you see in them. And I I think that what we need to do here is just acknowledge that this ability, this creativity comes from being image bearers of God, that we are reflecting what God is to us by way of being made in his image to be able to accomplish things and create things and do things. And we should be proud of these things in the right way. And I think this is the thing that you have to guard yourself against. The answer to the problem of pride is to make sure you give glory to God, who is our creator and our Lord. That we know very well where my gifting and my abilities come in under God, under his giftedness that he's given, his goodness that he gives to us, the ability to do these things. And the obvious response to that should be a thankful heart. And when I use my gifts, and when you use your gifts 
for God and for his glory, he is glorified and the body of Christ is built up. One of the areas that some of the early Christian church struggled with was in pride as it related to spiritual gifts. So, you know, they kind of had this thinking, if you read in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, that somehow having a, a gift like tongues was better than having a gift like helps. But Paul says in Romans 12, 3, that uh, we are to have sober-minded judgment about this. And here's how it goes. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Sober ju judgment doesn't mean that um, we deny having the gift. No, it means to rightly understand it before God, that God has given each of us certain gifts that we are to use, and we use it for his glory. I remember as a teenager, oh, I want to read one more passage that I think Paul um, highlights this as well, and it's Galatians 6. And it says, If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. So it's just a, another kind of emphasis there of what sober judgment should look like rather than a complete denial like false humility that those gifts are even there. Now, as a teenager growing up in the church, I struggled to understand how to receive a compliment because I was aware of the fact that, you know, we want to glorify God. And so well-meaning people would come up and, pay me a compliment. They would say things like, you know, Rod, you did a really good job with this or that. Or I really appreciate that you were willing to do this or that. And in the moment, I would think to myself, well, I don't want to touch the glory. So how am I supposed to reply to this? You know, and I was awkward. I would try to deflect it to God and maybe use some spiritual language and say, well, to God be the glory, you know, praise the Lord. Oh, it's just Jesus. <laughs> and now there's nothing wrong with those things. And I think they can be said in such a way that they're not false humility, um, but they're also unnecessary. Why I say that is this. You could simply just say thank you. Wow, that really encourages me. Thank you for saying so. Because I don't think the people are trying to worship you. They're trying to encourage you. And for that, you can say thank you. And in your heart, you can say thank you to God. Because that's what I think matters most. More than the words, it's about what's going on in the heart. That's what we see with King Herod. So... By way of reflection, we might be asking ourselves, well, how do I know what's going on in my heart? How do I know if I have a proud heart? And I was doing some reading by John Maxwell. He's a leadership coach, and it's in a leadership context. But I think it can apply, apply to all of us. Um, he says this about pride. Pride leads to blaming others. And I think that's true. Prideful people look for someone to blame instead of taking responsibility. Hmm. Pride leads to closed-mindedness. Prideful people are generally defensive and opposed to new ideas because they're more concerned about improving their position than they are about improving the organization or developing other leaders. Pride leads to broken relationships. Prideful people tend to deflate others because of their own insecurity. They take too much of the credit in the victories and they give out too much blame in the losses. And as a re result of that, they drive people away from themselves. And fourthly, pride prohibits us from learning. When we're prideful, we lose perspective on everything around us. We begin justifying our behavior and ignoring mistakes. Pride deceives us into thinking that our greatest problem is failure, when the truth is our greatest problem is failing to learn. And so he says, John Maxwell says, the key to all of this is humility. And then he goes on to say, here's five questions I ask leaders 
to see if they might want to assess themselves as to if they have a problem with pride. He says, do you tend to believe you know it all? Do you tend to believe the rules don't apply to you? Do you think you should be in charge in most situations? Do you tend to believe you can get everything done without anyone else's help? Do you think you are so important or more important than the organization? So that's some questions that he asks his leaders when trying to assess whether or not they have a pride problem. But he also says this. He wants us to know that we can change and that it's not how you start that counts the most, it's how you finish in life. And so, you know, if you end up answering yes to some of those or all of them, uh, he's trying to say, hey, it's not too late. You need to identify it, have some self-awareness and begin to work on it. That would be his answer. And of course, humility is the answer to pride. So change is possible. But the question I'm asking is, do I have a pride problem? Do I think I know better than others? And I am going to share with you one of my own stories, one that I am not proud of. So a number of years ago, in 2011, um, I was on a sabbatical, and our family had four weeks of vacation time where we could take a trip. And we went on a motorhome trip. And my, other fr or my friend had said to me, hey, you know what you can do? Uh, we've done this before. You can buy a motorhome out of the States. You can import it into Canada, take your trip, and then afterwards sell it at a profit. And I thought, well, that's a good plan. What could go wrong? And so I was doing that, and I did it. I bought a motorhome for $15,000. My other friend wanted to take a vacation much like mine, and he heard about this plan. He said, that's a good idea. I'm going to do the same thing. And he bought a motorhome for $26,000. Obviously, different year, different make, model, and all that kind of stuff. And I thought to myself, you paid too much. I think my plan is better than yours. I think my plan is going to work out better than yours. Now, I thought it. I didn't say it as if that makes it any better. At the end of the trip, when... Everything was said and done, and we both sold our motorhomes. He made $2,000. I lost $5,000. I lost five grand on that motorhome excursion. Now, I was sore about that for quite some time. I was actually sore with God about it because I felt like he had led me to this motorhome and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, as if that means you're invincible from the pains and ailments of this world. And somehow, I thought it was owed to me that it would actually be a winning experience, not a losing experience. No one else knew about the inner conversation that I'd had with God about this. No one else. I never told them. I just, it, it kind of was in my mind. And you know, I heard God saying to me afterwards, after I'd processed this for some time, you know, Rod, I love you way too much to let something like pride have its way in your life. So while I was like kind of criticizing God for this thing, he was like speaking to me about, yeah, but I did it for a reason. I did it for a reason, Rod, because I love you too much to let pride be sneaky and growing. And as a follower of mine, it doesn't have any place. And so it was just one of those life lessons. Now, it could be a hundred different things too, right? I didn't tell that story for a really long time. And I think that in itself was an issue of pride. Because who wants to tell about the time they lost five grand on a, on a vehicle uh, purchase and sale, right? But last year, I told a friend of mine, we were walking along the Vetter River having a conversation. I told him this story. And he looked at me and he said, Rod, to learn a lesson like that, when you did in life, that's a price I would pay any time. I just think that it saved you from something that you haven't realized yet. And I was like, wow. Don't think of what it cost you to learn that lesson. Think about what it's saved you from becoming. 
By the way, I called my friend this week, the one that did better than me on his motorhome sale, and I told him the story the first time I told him. And we laughed together. It was a good moment. And uh, now that I've told you and I've told him, I feel really free about this story. So how does pride surface in our lives? How does pride surface in your life? What does it look like? And what does it look like to those around us? Because we need to keep straight that God is God and we are not. We are merely his servants and his stewards of everything that he's given to us. Everything. Every ability, all the money, whatever it might be. Everything he's chosen to give to us. We are just stewards of it. And when it's in its proper place and a compliment comes, we know what to do with it. We give thanks to God. We give glory to God in our hearts and we do it quickly. I want Jesus to have the final word on pride today and so I want to quote for you some of his words to his disciples when they were arguing over who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. You probably know this story. And Jesus calls his disciples to himself and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's our challenge. May our lives be given in service to others following Jesus. And may we always be quick to give thanks to God for everything that he's given to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that pride is a real struggle. And uh, it's not something we settle once in our hearts and lives. It's something that we are aware of on a daily basis, and we're keeping it in check. We're being reminded of you as our God, and you as our creator, and you as our redeemer, and you as our Lord. And so we submit again and again these good things that you choose to bless us with or cause us to be a blessing to others. We give you the glory. We are grateful for it. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's a few questions you can discuss in your home or with a friend. Do you have a pride story? One of those pride goes before the fall. I'll put them up there. Do you have a pride goes before the fall kind of story that you could share? Either your own or one that you've witnessed. Secondly, have you seen the sneaky, deceitful side of pride? Like how it really works? Because it doesn't always look the same, does it? Thirdly, in what kinds of situations do you think the words of Jesus, do not lord it over them, could apply to our lives today? Well, God bless you as you discuss those questions. Thanks again for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.